welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Parliament is back, the House of Commons is up and running, and MPs have returned to the day job. But what about the extra day jobs? Some brand new research, spearheaded by Sky News and Tortoise, has shone a light on the extra income of MPs. So, how much are we talking about? Does it actually end up in MPs' pockets? Who is paying? We're going to be joined by the journalist who is leading the story. Then we'll turn our attention to people who would like to increase their earning power. And that's the many public sector workers who are striking over pay. Is the government any closer to finding a way to settle a whole set of disputes? And what would its proposed anti-strike legislation look like? And when is it likely to be on the statute book? And then we'll go on to a dispute that might, just might, be showing signs of heading towards some sort of resolution. Could the stalemate on the Northern Ireland Protocol and on forming an executive in Northern Ireland really be nearing an end? We will talk to the IFG's resident expert. Joining me in the IFG studio throughout today's episode is our senior researcher, Alice Lilly. Hi, Alice. Hi, Hannah. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Sam Coates, deputy political editor at Sky and the journalist behind the report into MPs' earnings. Hello there. Hi, Sam. So let's kick off with the earnings story. Sam, can you just run us through what data you are sharing and what's new about it? So this week, Sky News and uh, having worked with our partners, Tortoise Media, have done really quite a lot of different things. It's probably worth if I just explain uh, the project. So this week, Sky News, together with our partners, Tortoise Media, have launched really quite a lot of stuff. And it's come at people from different places. So let me just try and explain the great big long seven month project that we've done. The first thing that we've done is we commissioned Tortoise to pull together lots of bits of data that's in the public domain, transparency data uh, from MPs and political parties. Now, uh, given the audience of this podcast, I could be I could be pretty specific. So what we did, we took the register of members' financial interests and uh, essentially have turned that into a spreadsheet, um, particularly looking at the donations, earnings, gifts and benefits uh, sections of that document. Now, the reason that we did that is because at the moment, each entry is like a kind of a written paragraph. It's, just sort of, it's quite dated. It's almost like it was written in a quill pen, you know. And, and what we wanted to do is allow people to compare MP with MP on a like-for-like basis. So we have now generated a single figure, and this is very controversial, a single figure for how much MPs have earned in this parliament. And then separately, we have generated a single figure for how much MPs have been donated in that parliament. And we've looked at who the biggest donors are, and we've looked at who the biggest recipients of donors are, and we've also looked at some of the data around APPGs, those informal uh, uh, groups of MPs uh, that can get support from outside organisations. So the first thing was to build that spreadsheet. The second thing is to do something quite unusual in journalism, which is to turn it into something that you at home can use. And that's the Sky News and Tortoise tool that you can get via the Sky News app and somehow via Tortoise. But go, go there with the Sky News app. <laughs> and, um, and that is a beautifully designed, very carefully written uh, attempt to lead everybody through what they've got. So you can look at your own MP uh, and then you can kind of play around with the sort of financial universe, as it were, in politics. And, and, and what you can do with that that you couldn't really do before is you can look at who was given to lots of individual MPs and sort of see just the total sum of what they've given in this parliament. And you can look at who the biggest outside earners are. And, and, and those are the sort of uh, the, the, um, the, some of the key functionality of the tool. Then the third thing that we've done, and this is this is the bit that I've been most heavily involved in, well, basically the bit that I've done, uh, is as it were the journalism that, that you might have seen um, popping up. 
um, a focus uh, on Sunday on earnings and that incredible £17 million figure uh, that MPs have earned on top of their £84,000 a year salary. Uh, that's a figure for the whole of this parliament. Uh, on Monday, looking at some of the individ biggest individual donors to MPs. On Tuesday, we were looking at who the biggest recipients of donations are. That's often leadership contenders. And then uh, on Wednesday, we're looking at how business plays away. Now, there's an awful lot. It, 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 you know, Sky is primarily a TV channel. There's a lot of visual content that you can access on our website, on my Twitter feed, Sanko Sky, and um, uh, that shows you two big conclusions. And I'll stop after this. The two big conclusions are one, although there is a degree of transparency, just by MPs following the rules that we have doesn't necessarily tell you what's going on. And that was, I was really struck by that. And the second thing I was really struck by is that when there are questions about money. The view is on a, of a lot of MPs that this subject is just too toxic. The atmosphere and the environment around that subject is really too dangerous to handle uh, and that they would rather kind of run away and not engage with our questions than answer even quite basic stuff. And that's where MPs and others have got into trouble this week. So those are, those are my two big conclusions. There are lots of headlines about who's earned the most, who are the biggest donors, all the rest of it. But actually, and you can see all of those all over the place, but actually for me, that's what I really felt like I found out this week. Thanks, Sarah. And I think, I mean, for me, as somebody with sort of the scars on my back of, of trying to interpret some of this data in, in the past, the thing which is really useful about the work that you've done is to, is to enable that sort of cumulative analysis and the comparative analysis. So, yes, you could go and look at, at what your personal, what your constituency MP had declared, but the idea of thinking, you know, how does that compare to other people? And as you say, are there donors who are giving consistency, consistently to lots of people? That is a much harder exercise. And the sense I've had talking to MPs this week is really that they, they, they feel this is a bit unfair because they say we followed the rules, as you say. We've put this stuff in the public domain. But as you're saying, that, that doesn't, you know, there's a notional transparency. It's not quite the same as uh actually having usable data out there. And I think that's something we at the IFG often find with government data, that it's really easy in this world of the internet and so on for uh, government parliament to think, oh, we are putting the data out there, you know, we can't be criticised now. But the chance of anyone actually making use of that data, I mean, Alice, you, you've worked on actually quite a lot of our uh, reports that make use of government data. And I think it's, it's a consistent uh, experience right yeah absolutely across government across parliament and you know the point that you were making sam is that there are so many bits of data that are held in so many different places it becomes incredibly fragmented and so yes data might actually exist it might be out there but actually if you can't really put it together and make any kind of meaningful comparisons that data is not really telling you anything and I suppose there's kind of two reasons for that which is that you know firstly the way that our systems have kind of developed is often in a sort of slightly ad hoc reactive way which means you have different bodies who are responsible for different things and they have different reporting requirements and so on but then the second thing particularly when it comes to things around sort of MPs pay and expenses and funding is that there's not really Felt to be any particular incentive for MPs to necessarily change how that system works. That's the other point that I was going to pick up on, Alice, because I think the data, the cumulative data that you can see from your reporting demonstrates exactly why progress hasn't been made on this. And that's because there are real, there's a party political angle on this. In terms of earnings, the Conservative Party members, MPs from the Conservative Party earn much more than other parties. 
And so there's very little incentive for the second jobs, uh, you know, issue, which we come on to talk about, to be kind of addressed because the governing party uh, is their MPs who benefit. Absolutely. Just to, to take all of those points and jumble them up and, 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 and kind of look at them in order. Um, so, yes, we put it in the public domain. And I, I think it's fair to say that there are a fair few MPs that are n- not happy with what we've done and they do see it as a bit of a hit job. One MP told me that he was cancelling his Sky subscription. Another MP uh, told me that it was just a hit job to make everybody look bad um, and uh, uh, that they wouldn't be engaging with us uh, uh, in, the, in the short term. Um, and another MP said that it was a, a political attack of the sort that you might see from campaign group 38 degrees. So it's fair to see, say, particularly as the face of the project, that uh, um, a number of uh, wide range of views have been expressed um, uh, at varying levels of volume. And uh, I will always continue to listen uh, to various points of view and feed them back. Actually, I mean, you might, it's probably sounded a little bit sarcastic, but 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 I'm, I, this bit is serious. We, we, we've done a massive piece of work. We're not claiming it's perfect. We are listening. And actually, we're going to change some stuff, right? So... Um, we're not sitting in an ivory tower. It isn't a piece of the, the, the tool isn't a piece of journalism. It, it, it's going to evolve. We'll probably say version two is a great big improvement. The, the truth is, what we've done is we've listened to a range of views, some, some of which have been fairly critical, and, and we're trying to respond to that. So um, it is a piece of we think public journal, service journalism and, and or public service, and we're trying to act in that spirit. But at its heart, the stuff that I've driven in this are leaderboards. And if we're being completely honest, I've never met an MP that really honestly loves leaderboards, top 20s. <laughs> and it's hard, the most exciting thing for me is, is it going to exactly both of your um, points, Alice and Hattie, is like um, we have done the top leaderboards for earnings, and you are completely right, something like 17 of the top 20 are Tories. That's why Tories turned out not to be able to perform second jobs, I suspect. Um, we've done the – this was genuinely exciting – for the first time ever, we, we came up with the top 20 donors to individual MPs. You have never seen that list before, and you don't recognise a lot of what's in that list. So that's the sort of footage of me knocking on, you know, PVC building doors and 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 um and speaking to accountants looking baffled and and, and all of that. That there was there was point behind that theatre, which is we should really be able to better understand the companies that fund quite a lot of MPs. Uh, there was a leaderboard of who's getting the most money, and it's leadership contenders, right? And it's quite interesting who aren't leadership contenders. I'm quite sure why Michael Gove is so high up that list. Um, it's quite interesting who gives to Keir Starmer, and, and, and it's not unions, and that's quite important. And then the fourth leaderboard we did of um, who are the outside organisations paying the most to fund APPGs. You've never seen that before. And by the way, a lot of them are uh, registered consultant lobbyists. That's a link that you sort of knew, but we've actually made. And it's those leaderboards and that comparative thing, which no politician ever wants to see in the public domain that we've done so it's not a surprise that there's a range of views and it's not a surprise that quite a lot of people are, are, are upset but that's the bit I think I will go to my grave totally <laughs> defending in the way that we did it and I'm very very proud of the massive team behind it and I mean one of the things that um strikes me really is standards committee every parliament does a review of the MP's code of conduct, which is what sets out the rules on declarations of, of these interests and so on. And I cannot remember a standards committee report in recent years that hasn't said the register of members' interest, interest is not sufficiently accessible and work should be done to make it more accessible. So do we feel that MPs um, 
sort of within the governance system could rightly be a bit frustrated that they have actually been saying that sorting this out should be a priority, but it, it hasn't happened. So the Parliament Digital Service is working on an app to make MPs' data more transparent and accessible. And um, they have been told a version will be ready in March, but they are conscious that deadlines for complex databases do slip. I can, I can, I can understand all yeah. of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that um, some of those involved in that project think it might actually realistically come in June. And what that will do is be much more safe, searchable than simply what they've done is that it's a, the registered members' financial interest, as everybody knows, is a PDF of a document that's existed for, for you know, 50 years, whatever. Um, and this will be searchable by interest. Now, what, what I haven't quite got to the bottom of is, and I think the answer is no, is whether they do the same really controversial task as we've done, which is to put numbers on it. I think what they're going to do is it's going to end up being searchable up to a point Lord Copper, uh, so that um, uh, everybody's caveats and asterisks and deviations and um, musings on how how nicely they treat the money, how they look after it brilliantly, and it goes to a billion good causes, all of which is not actually the sort of the point of the, of the register. The point is to declare the things they're required to, do, to, to declare under the rules. Um, with all of that context that they're so upset that we're that, that are not in our tool, uh, I, I wonder when push comes to shove, uh, whether that, whether or not it's just the, the same thing slightly better presented, but not really differently. And, and the other thing that I'm really interested in is the Standards Committee thinks that they've put this in train. They think that it is happening and they think that uh, all the necessary, and it's got government backing, and they think that all the necessary approvals have been done uh, in terms of Parliament uh, and were done in the December vote on updating standards. Now, my my problem with this is if it is going to provide a genuinely greater level of transparency I have a hunch, based on a little bit of experience, that that might be controversial. If the House of Commons is going to allow something, if the Standards Committee is going to do something that is controversial and upsets some MPs, I have a suspicion that it might have to end up coming back to the floor of the House. And if it comes back to the floor of the House, I'm very, very interested to see whether people agree with it. And 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 I just wonder whether we're, we ever quite get there. But, and if, the, if it doesn't need to come back to the floor of the house because it's not that controversial, I wonder how useful it is. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, based on a sample of the MPs that I've spoken to so far about our project, I think 0% of them would vote in favour of them doing something like what we did themselves. And so that's my question. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the fact that this has been recommended repeatedly by uh, a parliamentary committee and, and that those those committees that have gone to the House may, may have passed on notice by some MPs. We, just to come back to the question of, of second jobs, I suspect one of the reasons that a set of MPs might be quite cross with you, Sam, is because it's raised that question back up the agenda. And Alice, I mean, after the Patterson, Owen Patterson scandal, the House of Commons resolved that it wanted to put restrictions around the second jobs mm. that MPs uh, could have. The Standards Committee, again, went away and thought about this and recommended in the end pretty minor changes to the system. You can't now take a job which is called parliamentary consultant or strategist or something mm. like that, but nothing around actual limits on this stuff. What do you think Sam's and Sky, the tortoise project, means for this question of, of second jobs. Does it change anything? I think 
it probably will. I think the question is whether that will actually have any kind of long term effect. And coming back to the point you made a little bit earlier, Hannah, which I actually gather someone around this table has written a really good book about um, when it comes to kind of parliament, parliamentary rules, standards, the way parliament works, reform tends to be something that can kind of happen quite slowly and then sort of suddenly all at once. So you might have an issue and take something like um, second jobs or even take something like restoration and renewal. People will say for a long time, we need to do this. They will go over the options again and again. They will come up with the same answer. Um, everybody will agree that sort of something must be done. And then actually nothing really happens until there is probably some kind of external event, you know, be that a scandal, be that a big news story, be that what it may, that actually suddenly puts that reform top of the agenda again and Parliament feels the need to do something. And, and that's why we end up with the kind of ad hoc system that we do. So I suppose the question is, obviously, the work that Sam and his team have done has got everybody talking, but will that absolutely translate into some kind of action? It's hard to say. I think I, I think that's absolutely right. And so, Sam, I mean, the slightly uncomfortable question that potentially this all raises is, are we, are we paying our MPs enough? Um, I don't know. I, I think that's the right debate. And I don't think it would be for me to have a view. I, have, I don't have views on lots of things, Hannah, as you know. Um, but I do think that's the right that's the right question. And you know, MPs' expenses, the period of months for which some of us bear scars on our back, um, uh, really was a discussion about whether we pay MPs enough or whether or not there isn't a backdoor way to do it. You know, in the Blair era, essentially, they allowed uh, the straight taking of the twenty-one grand in the additional cost allowance as a as a as a sort of substitute for for, for paying MPs more, and um, the the pro- and the problem is the one that we all know, which is that you know, a little bit like difference between income tax and national insurance. Headline salary is a really really high profile thing to to, to tinker around with. Needless to say, particularly at the moment where you know with with the economy where it is. So. Um, yes, that's the debate, um, but this is where this is the confluence of politics, uh, need, uh, and uh, rational response. And brilliantly, in our political system, we often get that wrong when we throw those three things in the melting pot and try and come out with an answer. That's one of the few areas in which Parliament has outsourced the, the decision to an independent body following the expenses scandal. Um, but it, but it hasn't really. It sort of half has. So they recommend the figure and then and then everybody sort of either gives it back or, you know, asterisk. I mean, I just, I mean, um, one of the things that really struck me about the vote in December is just how much back t- deciding this all themselves MPs are on everything. Mm. I mean, I, I, I feel like, I, I, I feel like we're insourcing the outsourcing. And I think that's a particular thing with the restoration and renewal project um, mm. from what I understand from a skim reading of headlines. Um, uh MPs don't like not being very, very, very sovereign. Indeed, and, but then they equally don't like it when it's them that that, that, that gets criticised for mm. setting their own salaries. So it's difficult to have it both ways. Mm. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and I think just on that as well, 
one of the things that is also, I think, true when it comes to the way that sort of funding and money in our political system generally work is that it's not hugely well understood, in part because it's a really complicated system for all the reasons that kind of we've talked about. And actually, I think one of the effects of that is that because people don't necessarily understand the difference between, say, MPs pay and MPs expenses, actually, people will often then tend to assume much worse things about how MPs work and how money works than is perhaps the reality. And this is where the kind of tool that Sam has done is really important, because actually, and I'm sure there will be people listening who will think that what I'm about to say is very naive, but actually more transparency can really help people understand how MPs work and what the job they do is and why it's important. That goes totally to the heart of the conversation that slightly, you know, exploded my head this week. Um, because the argument from MPs is that the, the, the question of money, and I'm passing it and they didn't quite put it in these terms, but you know, the subject of money in politics is really toxic in an environment where being an MP um, involves having a lot of abuse and hate thrown at you. And so, in, so putting stuff boldly in the public domain in the way that we've done um, actually is really unhelpful. It makes people suspicious when they shouldn't be. And it requires a lot of kind of cleaning up after us to explain that, you know, I didn't get that money. It wasn't cash. It, was, it wasn't earnings. It was a donation. And it resulted in a trip that was for a perfectly proper p- price. Right. And it's just like, because we've gone and done this, we have made we've increased abuse and you haven't actually done something useful. But, but then I take a step back and I go, but if, if you're arguing that the problem here is that people don't understand what's going on, why isn't the answer engaging with it in explaining? And, and, and I've had MPs who go, but my local paper folder, they didn't get it, so I had to explain, and then they were fine with it. I'm like, yes. yeah. <laughs> and I'm sorry you didn't like that, but that's kind of the whole point. Yes, we've started the conversation, but it is mm-hmm. the vacuum that MPs, I think there's a kind of Blair era spindle, it might, that might be that might be tarnishing Alistair Campbell unfairly, but there's a sort of, there's a, you know, I think it's probably went back to major. There is a spin doctor shibboleth, which says, you know, when when journalists come in knocking with a difficult question, often it's best not to engage at all, give the bare minimum, which is what Yvette Cooper was treating and Dan Jarvis did over NPM Connect, and then maybe they go away. But my starting point is, if you just explain what's going on, if you don't think there's a problem, then you should be able to explain it rather than hiding. And I and I understand this argument about toxicity and hate and abuse and weaponizing it and all and all the rest. And, and I hear that, mm. but some of the most impressive politicians that I came across in this project were the ones that went, oh, well, there's this, but it's for this reason, and and we did it this way because of this. And then we kind of went away because it was completely common sense. It was like, mm-hmm. and, and if and, you can have a system which in the first place makes it easy to understand that, then MPs won't have to spend any of their time explaining it. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's turn our attention away from people who are already topping up their earnings to people who would like to, and that's the many public service workers on strike across the country. The government has been digging in uh, there's some possible uh, shifts in that position this week, uh, and, but they are talking about some rather controversial new legislation. I'm delighted that Nick Davies, our IFG Programme Director for our public services work, is joining us now. Hi, Nick. Hi, Anna. And just to link this discussion with the last, uh, Sam said that MPs 
don't like leaderboards. Uh, and that's true, but it's worth noting uh, that league tables and other approaches to naming and shaming have been a pretty central approach used by governments over recent decades to try and improve the performance of public services. And indeed, there's some evidence that it has and it changes behaviour. So I don't think MPs are in a particularly strong position to argue that those approaches shouldn't be applied to them. Fair point. Nick, this legislation, this, this, this bill that the government's introducing, can you just quickly run us through what it's all about? Yes. So the bill gives ministers powers to set legally binding minimum service levels in health, fire, uh, education, transport, nuclear decommissioning and border security. Exactly what those minimum service levels are would be set out in secondary legislation following consultation, but are effectively at the discretion of relevant ministers. Uh, Employers would then be able to issue work notices to unions, naming which members of staff have to work during a strike. And if those work notices are defied, employers would be able to sue the unions or fire individual members of staff. Right. And can you see the logic behind this all? And, And is it something that other countries already do? So there's clearly a political side to the government's uh, thinking, which I might leave Sam to discuss uh, in a bit more detail. But I think practically the government will be hoping that this reduces the impact of strikes and therefore weakens the bargaining position of unions, making it easier and cheaper to end disputes. And that may be true, though it's unlikely to have much impact on the disagreements over this year's pay awards, um, given the amount of time it will take to get on the statute book and then to agree what the minimum service levels are. I think whether it actually has much of a difference, I think ultimately you can't legislate your way into better labour relations. And if you don't pay staff enough and you prevent them from striking, then they're probably going to find other ways to withdraw their labour, either by resigning or by not taking those jobs uh, in the first place, which is going to exacerbate the huge recruitment and retention problems that public services face at the moment. And other countries? So this has been one of the kind of government's key justifications uh, for doing it, that it brings us in line with particularly other European um, countries. And it's certainly true that countries like uh, France, Germany, Spain, uh, Italy do have kind of minimum service uh, levels. Uh, it's worth noting that while those sometimes have legislative underpinnings, more often it's the result of mutual agreements between uh, employers and unions, which is indeed basically what happens here at the moment. So, for example, the recent nurses strikes, um, individual NHS trusts were negotiating um, with nurses in their local area about what they call derogations, about basically who's going to continue working, even though there's a strike. I think the other thing to note is that in other countries, the measures are rarely enforced by firing workers or suing unions, as the government is proposing to do so here. Okay, Sam. So uh, Nick's passed you the question of the (laughs) politics of this. Do you think the government calculates this is going to go down well with voters? And do you you think that's right? I mean, there still seems to be quite a lot of public sympathy for for some of the groups, nurses, for example. Can I go full-on broadcast journalist at you and answer and ask a different question (laughs) before I get round to that? Because I think the politics of it comes second. Because I've got a question that I want to throw back at Nick. Nick? Is this ever going to happen? Like, and I and I asked that for like a million reasons, but let's start with a few. First of all, 
it's it, it, it all it'll all come down to the secondary legislation. We haven't seen that. Secondly, I just don't understand the principle. So we're like so just to get my head around this, we're making we're giving the right to sue unions, like not the employees, unions uh, for presumably compensation for loss of services. Now, I've I've never heard of an arrangement where the union gets sued. I, I, I'm happy to be corrected, um, and is, is therefore the, the responsible for the um, strike action and the failure to deliver um, that. Um, isn't there a problem that that what we're sort of doing is removing the right to strike from certain industries, which is a but we're not we're not doing we're not doing that through the front door, but we're doing it by the back door. So that will end up being a great big question of principle that ends up in the House of Lords, and you know. I don't think there's that long before the next general that long before the next general elections. I can't say that. And then, um, uh, and and then I just can't, as you say, from examples overseas, ever ever see that being being used. So, I mean, isn't this just a piece of slightly tedious political theatre that, that that will excite uh, in a in a small amount? But do you have any evidence that there will ever be a day where a union is sued? Look, it, it's a good question. And clearly, the introduction of this legislation has been part of the government trying to strengthen its own hand and saying, if you don't come to an agreement with us, then this is what we will do instead. Clearly, the government is also under quite a lot of pressure from vocal parts of its own backbenchers to try and put this on the statute book or to get tougher with unions in negotiations. I mean, I might defer to Alice in terms of the kind of the parliamentary arithmetic and whether this is actually ever likely to get on the statute book. I mean, you know, if it did get on the statute book, then there is, as currently written, a huge amount of discretion to ministers to write the minimum service levels. So absolutely, they they could write those pretty much as they see fit. And I think whether unions then end up getting sued, I think that's going to come down to the kind of the local employers. Like, you know, is it actually going to improve your local workforce situation if you end up firing loads of workers because they didn't turn up or you end up suing the local union as i said ultimately this is about trying to reach agreement between two different di- different sides is there precedent for this in this business of unions being sued though anywhere else in our system not that i'm aware of that feels like a really big thing that that's been just swept along in passing because that's a big change about where responsibility lies i want to pick up on that other point you make though Sam, about, you know, is this just political theatre? And I think, you know, we all know that a big part of the political playbook in this country, in most countries, you know, sometimes in lieu of activity, what you want to do is introduce a bill to be able to talk about, you know, the fact that you are legislating. And I think we've seen something possibly similar in relation to the small boats um, sort of pledge that the, the Prime Minister made in his speech, you know, not I am going to bring down the number of small boats arrivals in the UK by X numbers by the X date. But I am going to introduce legislation. And I, I think this is something we're going to see increasingly over the next couple of years. It's it's relatively cheap slash cost free, apart from the running of Parliament mm. to introduce legislation. As you say, Sam, it may never even get onto the statute book, but you can talk it looks like you're doing stuff and given there isn't a lot of money to splash around on, you know, big policy initiatives right now saying you're legislating is sometimes a proxy for that but Alice do you think uh, uh, there's a risk of a sort of own goal around that in the end you know 
at the end of the day, doesn't the public want to see actual kind of results <laughs> rather than another bill? Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right that there's a real question here about whether the government actually ever intends this to get on the kind of statute books. Um, you know, as you say, that it can be helpful for governments to kind of say, well, look, we're doing something, we've got legislation that's going through Parliament. And then you sort of hope that actually, as that bill gets lost somewhere in Parliament, either the situation will change or the public will forget about it. And so you have the benefit of saying we're doing something without actually doing something. It is a risky strategy, though. Um, and I think part of the reason is that Sam mentioned that you know, if we assume that this bill keeps going, it gets to the House of Lords, it's likely to have a really rough time there. Um, it's the kind of bill that the House of Lords tends to be quite interested in. The government does not have a majority in the House of Lords. And we've seen a House of Lords in recent years that is increasingly assertive and really kind of willing to inflict defeats on the government. And if it's something that ends up being very controversial in the House of Lords, actually that could put the issue back on the agenda for the government, but sort of for the wrong reasons. And actually what people pick up on is, oh, well, this thing that the government said they were going to do hasn't actually happened yet. Um, so yeah, it's a risky strategy. The other thing it's just worth saying is that on a purely logistical point, we think that the current session of parliament will end at some point in the autumn. That means either the government needs to get this bill through by then, which is not likely, or they're going to have to try and carry it over into the next session. And then you are starting to head towards another election. And I think there's a really interesting then, just to, to, to tip back to the politics, I think there's a really interesting question for Rishi Sunak, which is the point. Uh, so imagine the point at which the Lord's going, you actually you're kind of really dealing with fundamental rights that you're removing by the back door through this slightly nebulous route, using a sort of constitution path and putting that, that we don't quite understand and, 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 and putting responsibility on bits of the state that haven't had it before. So that's actually quite a big deal. And we're, we're kind of going to go pause. The question for Rishi Sunak at that point, it's a definitional question, is, does he go all enemies of the people? Right. Is it... You look at all these vested interests, uh, the House of Lords, the judges, the judges, the judges, the House of Lords, you know, the journalists, the, the, the left react, you know, does he go kind of, you know, the, as the sort of Tory campaign machine often pushes people from Theresa May to Boris Johnson, kind of like down that route, given that his definition of himself is the rationalist who likes to solve problems, right? He's either got to press the kind of populist button at that point and sort of rip up the definitional image of himself that he's created to date, or, you know, it, 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 it's yet another failure, and it's yet another thing that he made a personal priority, and I, and I, and I don't have enough fingers for those, um, uh, that didn't actually end up being solved and resulting in action. That's an interesting point. Nick, to end on public services, ultimately, this is about pay, which is about workforce, as you say, it's about recruitment, retention, what is what is, how much trouble is the NHS or public services really in right now? And you know, is for the government, is it just a sort of mechanical question of sorting out, you know, getting some deals, sorting out the strikes? What, what's the bigger picture? I mean, there are huge problems with recruitment and retention right across public services, whether you're looking at uh, doctors, nurses, uh, care workers, criminal barristers, certain types of teachers. You know, in many cases, those problems were they're longstanding. They were helped in the first year of the pandemic because people wanted to hold on to jobs that they already have. But rather predictably, things have reverted to where they were pre-pandemic or indeed have got worse. 
quite understandably in some cases, because particularly for frontline health and care workers, they've had a pretty horrible couple of years in terms of their working experience. Uh, And so it's kind of understandable that there's burnout, there's still really high levels of sickness. You know, in the NHS currently, we have the uh, highest um, vacancy rate on record of around 10% of staff. So we're talking about tens and tens of thousands of people short. Uh, and clearly that is a major contributory factor to the really poor performance that we're seeing across public services, but particularly in the NHS and particularly in hospitals at the moment. We'll be keeping our eye on all of this this year. Thank you so much for joining us, Nick. Right, let's look at another standoff, or maybe two standoffs. One in Northern Ireland, whose political parties can't agree a power-sharing deal, in large part because they can't agree about the Northern Ireland Protocol. And one between the UK government and the EU, who can't agree about what to do about the Northern Ireland Protocol. Until now, possibly. Jess Sargent, our senior researcher and expert on all things Northern Ireland, joins us now. Hi, Jess. Hi, Hannah. So some interesting developments this week. What's been going on? So it's been a very busy week uh, on the Northern Ireland Protocol front. On Tuesday, the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverley, met with his European counterpart, Mara Shevkovic, and they agreed on a way forward on data sharing on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Then on Wednesday, the Foreign Secretary was with the Secretary of State in Belfast to meet the political parties, but unfortunately that didn't go quite as planned after Sinn Féin and the SDLP, the two nationalist parties, ended up boycotting that meeting um, because the UK government didn't invite uh, Sinn Féin President Mary Lou MacDonald, um, who is the leader of Sinn Féin, but also um, a representative in the Irish Parliament rather than the Northern Irish Parliament. Um, and then today, Irish, the Irish Taoiseach, Leo Varadka and Keir Starmer are both in Belfast. So there's lots of activity ahead of this deadline for executive formation on the 19th of January. Do you think it is just sort of frenetic activity? Is it, is it more than a mood shift or is it, do you actually see sort of the likelihood of progress? Yeah, so some people were characterising this agreement on data sharing as a breakthrough. I think that's probably a little bit of an overstatement, but I think it is significant for two reasons. The first being that it is an agreement rather than a disagreement, um, which is something that we haven't had in a very long time on the Northern Ireland Protocol, a uh, kind of sign that you know good faith is translating into action and, and agreement in some areas. I think it's also significant because better data could potentially unlock some additional flexibilities from the EU. So far, the UK government has been sort of making the case that goods entering Northern Ireland and staying there aren't a risk to the EU single market. Um, But actually being able to demonstrate that in a way uh, that the EU is happy with could potentially um, create some ability to reach agreement on some additional flexibilities and minimise some of those checks and controls, certainly on customs. So that's what the data sharing applies to is customs here. There's another element of checks that are required on food products. And these are much more difficult because uh, they're much more onerous. They require physical inspections of goods. um, And they're also much more politically safe for the EU because it relates to food standards. They're particularly worried that food that doesn't meet EU standards ends up in the EU single market. I think there's a whole different solution that will need to be found there. And it's not clear that there's really enough movement. 
And then finally, there's all these other issues like the role of the European Court of Justice, um, VAT, state aid that aren't even really under discussion at the moment between the UK and the EU. So I think we are still quite far away from an ag agreement. Potentially, we might see some sort of interim deal and attempt to sort of chop up these issues so that both sides have something to present to the parties before the anniversary of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement in April. Um, but certainly, I think we're a long way away from all the problems being resolved. Sam, have you sensed a, a change of tone from government? Do you think any progress we're seeing is more to do with deadlines or to do with personalities? Tone goes up and down the whole time. And there is, I, I am a massive, massive sceptic that there'll be a deal. Um, I think, can I, that was a brilliant explanation of everything that I've, I've broadly seen and, and feel like it's going on, it, like, my my starting point is completely different and I want to tell the story my way and then see what you disagree with, right? I, <laughs> I think the subject of a deal on Northern Ireland is the single thing most likely to oust Rishi Sunak from number 10 and trigger a general election, right? The Conservative Party has been at war for like seven years over Brexit and um, for there to be a deal, as far as I can tell, Rishi Sunak would have to, uh, in re in return for getting rid of some of the checks that um, some of the actors in this debate don't like, easing further the flow of goods, he will have to do two things, except the ongoing use of the ECJ in Northern Ireland politics, a foreign court, uh, as some would put it. Uh, and secondly, implicitly in that deal if you were to get rid of those checks what, what you're what you're doing and I, and I suspect they wouldn't be very upfront about this is you'll sort of say we're doing that but 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 don't worry because we're not going to massively diverge in great britain from where we are in northern ireland and northern ireland is tied in some senses part of a, what some call a single market in goods and other people don't like the phrase uh, quite close to the european union so you're telling group the conservative party that the brexit that united the party in 2019 is going to involve the ECJ in a nation of the United Kingdom, and that actually GB is never going to diverge from uh, uh, from uh, the Northern Ireland and therefore from the EU. Right now, just work through the politics of that, um, uh, and I completely accept that there are some quite hardcore Brexiteers involved in this discussion. Steve Baker and Chris Heaton Harris. Uh, I don't think people would particularly doubt their their credentials. James Cleverly. Uh, in the Foreign Office, very nice offices in the Foreign Office, by the way. I can see, I can see, <laughs> I can see lots of, you know, even a range of views in, in his head um, uh, about what to do. But I think, I think politics is about numbers and uh, and partly about tides of sentiment. And I can quite see the bat symbol above Parliament going up, the cry "Avengers assemble," uh, and and it getting really, really. Sticky. Like the conversations I have with Tory MPs are like, we sort of know that Rishi Sunak wants to throw us under a bus on Brexit and like basically tie us to what they would cast as a form of checkers. Um, you only had to look at the unbelievably almost hysterical reaction over that Sunday Times front page uh, at the back end of last year where they suggested that there might be a Swiss style deal. Mm -hmm. I actually thought it wasn't a bad piece of journalism other than I wouldn't have called it a Swiss style deal. I I, I thought it basically tied us to something not a million miles away from checkers, i.e. high alignment with the EU that stops just so, short of membership of the single market and the customs unit. Right. But that's betrayal. That's betrayal for, for probably an unsustainably large number of Tory MPs. 
And so the question is, when we get a bit closer to something that looks like it, you can't you can't have the ECJ as an also run issue because 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 it'll flip round and you'll be knocked out by the whiplash <laughs> when it when it actually uh, is placed in the middle of the table. And um, uh, it's the end of proper diversity. I mean, some people thought the Brexit died with Liz Truss, uh, but this would be the, the proper formal ongoing, right? And there's nothing that that stops things being sorted out more than artificial deadlines. And that's what the Biden visit in eight, is it April or May? That's what that does. So I don't think anything's going to happen. Jess? Yeah, I mean, I would certainly ag- agree with your analysis of the, the political situation. And I'm also quite sceptical that, that there will be a deal. I suppose... The one sort of incentive for Richie Sunak, which I think is quite different to previous governments, is this kind of economic angle. And actually where we started to see resolve soften and more talk of a deal and talks restart was actually during Liz Truss's uh, leadership um, when she, after some, she had some issues with the pound. um, And I think there was the need to reassure the markets that we weren't heading into a major confrontation with the EU because fundamentally the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill is still there. It's not progressing. um, But if there isn't a deal with the EU, then I think there's going to be increased pressure to, to move that along. And fundamentally, if that passes, what will happen is that the EU will retaliate, potentially using mechanisms that it that it has available to it um, to suspend parts of the trade and cooperation agreement or something similar, um, and that could be really damaging for the um, the UK economically. So I think what's the most likely outcome is that we're just going to muddle through. Um, that you know talks will continue. There won't necessarily be a resolution, um, but kind of hanging in this balance between not upsetting his own party but also not spooking the markets or potentially creating problems for the UK economy. And I think one of the interesting things also is the EU's incentives to do a deal at this point, because, um, you know, it will have to move if there is going to be an agreement with the UK. But it's probably looking ahead to the next year and a half, the next election. There's another party there that says it wants to do a deal on agriculture and agri-food, which could resolve a lot of these problems. You know, how far does it go now when the situation might change quite significantly in a year and a half? So, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, it's almost as if nobody thought this through. <laughs> but I mean, I just think, you know, for our listeners in Northern Ireland, sitting listening to this, you know, there is no government mm-hmm. in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland. And you know, what what weight should our politicians be be putting on, on that fact? Absolutely. I think a, a huge amount of, of, of weight, exactly. Like a lot of the problems that we've been talking about here in, in kind of England about the health service have been much more acute in Northern Ireland for a very long time, in part as a consequence of the lack of government um, for three years before and the lack of, of long-term reform. So there are issues that really urgently need addressing. I think one of the most difficult things is that actually a UK-EU deal wouldn't necessarily mean that the DUP would go back into government. And we were talking before about, you know, legislation that might never make it on the statute books. I think the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill is an example of that. But the, the trap the UK government fell into there is it's now set expectations incredibly high. It's essentially promised the DUP that it will get rid of all checks on goods going between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and staying there. And a UK-EU deal is, is never going to deliver that. So it's very difficult to see what mechanisms, what arguments the UK government has left to convince the the DUP to go back into government. The Conservative Party cannot decide whether or not to subcontract Northern Ireland policy to the DUP. And one of the reasons it can't is because it it doesn't know where it's going to be after the next election, whether it might need them a bit. But so long as you subcontract Northern Ireland policy to the DUP, you're not going to get a deal that the EU is happy with. So, again, it's almost like nobody's thought this through. (laughs) 
And on that note, that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Alice Lilly, Nick Davies, Jess Sargent, and especially to Sam Coates. Thank you for being with us and good luck with the project. And thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And why not start the year by giving us a poll boost with a good review? And then head to our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, which I am delighted to say uh, has been given a whole new look for the new year. So please do check out our redesign. While you're there, you can find my new paper on the challenges facing government at the start of the year, as well as details of the first IFG annual conference taking place on Tuesday. We've got a great day of speakers lined up for you. Uh, We're featuring a speech from Penny Mordaunt, Lisa Nandy, Stephen Flynn. We'll have fantastic panels uh, featuring Chloe Smith, Stephen Bush, Aisha Hazawika, and wait for it, a special live recording of Inside Briefing with historian Dan Snow. Have a great weekend, everyone, and I'll see you next week. Bye.